Um, so we're finishing Mark today. Um, this has been a while in the making, and it's been great. If you've been here for all of it or part of it, or you've joined on live stream for um, the last um, several installments of this gospel, I, I know I've personally been blessed by this. I hope you have too. And uh, thank you, Danny, for letting me finish it. <laughs> this, is, this is cool. <laughs> um, this is, you could say, part two to Danny's sermon last Sunday, if you were here or you watched on the live stream. Um, Danny asked the question last Sunday, what headline will you believe? Will you put your confidence, your stability, your peace of mind in the, um, the headlines that we read today? <laughs> During 2020, you're nuts if you do that anyway. But will you believe those? Or... Will you believe the headline that Jesus, as he pointed out to us last week in Mark 15, that Jesus has come to die as the payment for our sin in our place? He stood in our place. He was abandoned so that we could be welcomed. He was treated as a sinner so that we could be made saints. He paid the penalty for the sin that we deserve to pay because it's our sin. Will we believe that headline? Today, you could say is part two, or for those of you who remember Paul Harvey, this is the rest of the story. And this is really cool, so we're going we're gonna to dive in here. But as I was thinking about how to kind of tee this up, so to speak, today, um, you know, before, I guess, early March 2020, <laughs> we, when we would read the news or read the headlines, um, you know, anything you read, whether it was on a physical newspaper, on your computer, tablet, iPhone, fill in the blank, anything that you would read would elicit a reaction, right? You would, you would re react in some way, whether you'd find the, the, art, the article or the author credible or not credible, or you would um, find it something you agreed with or not agree with, you would, re you would react in some way, whether with not much of a reaction or, at all, or it could have been somewhat dramatic. But when we would read news prior to March 2020, it rarely required a response from us and definitely didn't require a national or global response. Then COVID-19 hits us and we are all forced to respond to the headline, whether it was by personal decision or whether it was by government mandate, we all got sent home. It's like, don't come out un unless you're doing something essential. We, we couldn't just ignore it. <laughs> we weren't allowed to ignore it. I see masks today. We're not allowed to ignore the mask rule. And um, it required our response. I think we could say that about Mark 16 today. This is a text that if you're, if you're reading it and receiving it honestly, you cannot ignore this. You cannot ignore the account that Mark shares with us in Mark chapter 16. As we go into this text, as we read it together, I want you to think of that. This news, not advice, this news that Mark shares with us requires a response. Mark 16, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, Jesus, in the tomb. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, 
they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. It's Mark 16. That's the end. We're going to come back to that in just a second, but in order to get there, I think we need to do a quick recap of where we've come in the Gospel of Mark. Some of you have been here for all of it. Some of you here have, are, maybe this is your first Sunday. So I just want to recap where we've come from. So let's step back for a second. We know that the primary theme of Mark is that Mark is making the case that Jesus is the Messiah for whom the Jews have been waiting. All the way back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, he gives us his thesis statement. He says, the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ there is not a name, it's a title. Mark has been making the case throughout his letter, or throughout his gospel, that Jesus is the king. He's the royal figure for whom the Jews had been waiting. If you look at chapters 1 through 8, you'll see that Mark in general kind of asks the question, who is this Jesus? Over and over and over again, that, that theme comes to mind. And then in chapter 8, really 8 through 10, he answers that question for us. And he does it through Peter, primarily. You recall in chapter 8, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and he says to them, or he asks them a question, who do people say that I am? And they give him the rumors of the day. Some say that you're John the Baptist come back to life. Some say that you're the reincarnated Elijah. Some say you're a prophet. We all kind of agree that you're not like us. But then Peter steps up and he says, he says very plainly, and, and we know in, from other gospels that, from the other gospels, that Peter expanded on this statement. But Mark records just this. Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the king. Then immediately, and this again is, is kind of Mark's style. He jumps from one thing to the next really quickly. He has uh, incredible economy of style. It's very brief and to the point. He immediately goes into Jesus saying to Peter, I'm going to go die. He reiterates that in 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, that I'm going to go die. And so in the back half of the book, 11 through 16, Mark is kind of asking this question, how is Jesus the king? 
because he is definitely not the kind of king that his disciples and the people of his day, the Jewish audience that he came to, were, they, were, they weren't expecting a king like this. And so Mark is making the case throughout the latter half of his book that not only is Jesus the king, this is how he is the king. But we got all the way to chapter 15 last week, and Danny preached to us about the, the crucifixion of Christ, where all of this was thrown into turmoil. All of this about his kingship was called into question, right? He, kings, don't, kings that are supposed to rule and reign forever aren't, aren't supposed to die. So it's thrown into question in Mark chapter 15, and that brings us to chapter 16. Fully in question is, how in the world is this Jesus, the Messiah, the King? How in the world can this possibly be? And this is why I started by saying this is news that we cannot ignore. Because let's stop and, th and think for just a second. If you have heard this story a million times throughout your life, or this is the first time you're hearing it in your life, take a look at the account that Mark just gave us and really intellectually look at it and say, if this is true, what impact does this have on me? What impact does this have on the world? And I would argue that the resurrection of Jesus is the single most critical moment in the history of the universe. Dispute that point. I'll wait. If Jesus is the king who he says he is, he died and then rose again from the dead by taking back his life, on his own terms, as God, this changes everything. You cannot ignore him, and you cannot avoid him. You can reject him, or you can accept him, but you cannot ignore him, because this changes everything. Name for me one other person who has claimed to be the Messiah, died, and then rose again from the dead. I'll wait for that, too. If this is true, this changes everything, and you cannot ignore it, and neither can I. It answers the question of whether or not Jesus is the king, but by how Mark ends his gospel, and we're going to take a brief aside here for a second, in just a second, but how he finishes his gospel, he seems to frame it in such a way as to make us answer the same question that the ladies who came to his tomb early on that Sunday morning had to answer as they ran away in fear and trembling, and, and that was, what in the world do we do with this? What do we do with this Jesus? And he's making us answer the same question, too. Let's take a brief aside, though. And we've got to do this because this is very important for us to understand the text and in order to be honest with the text. If you're reading um, an English Standard Version, if you pick one of the Bibles out of the back of the chair in front of you, you're reading that. If you're reading an NIV, you'll see this also. In multiple English translations that we have, you might see after verse 8, a little bracketed section that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, 9 through 20. You may have read that before and gone, huh, interesting, and kept reading. reading. Or you might have read it and said, uh, that's a problem. <laughs> and you might have said, uh, can I trust that this is actually Mark's gospel? Can I trust the scriptures? If I'm looking at this and they're saying some of the earliest manuscripts don't include this. We need to take a look at this for just probably two and a half minutes. Um, first of all, should this cause us concern? Let's, let's look at a few of these reasons why it should not. <laughs> first of all, 
if you're looking at this and maybe you hadn't read that before, maybe you hadn't noticed it before and you're going, ooh, has this been an issue and, and we just didn't know about it until recently? No, this has been an issue that has been debated the world over for over a thousand years. So just know this isn't new. This hasn't taken anybody by surprise. Um, on top of that, not just the Gospel of Mark, but the entirety of Scripture has undergone more textual scrutiny than any other ancient book in the history of the world, probably by a factor of a million. <laughs> no other book has undergone this scrutiny, both by those who really, really want to understand if we have God's Word, positively so, and those who want nothing uh, more than to tear apart the veracity of Scripture. So it's undergone incredible scrutiny from both sides. On top of that, we have thousands of manuscripts, copies of the original autographs that those who Jesus inspired to write the scriptures, copies of those in different languages down through the ages. We have thousands of early manuscripts that were, that were penned. And none of those differ significantly on any um, major doctrine of scripture, and especially not the gospel. So when you look at the scriptures... Number one, walk away with incredible confidence that what you have in front of you is God's word. It is God's word for you. And number two, walk away incredibly impressed at how God has preserved his word for thousands of years for it to get into your lap right now. But with that, also be confident that when you read the Gospel of Mark, what that little bracketed section isn't saying is that I, we, we probably lost some of this. What it's saying is the earliest manuscripts that we have don't um, include verses 9 through 20. That doesn't mean that we don't know the rest of the, this story, right? If you want to read the rest of the story, go to one of the other Gospels. So you can read it there, but there is quite possibly, well, probably a very good reason why it may have ended at verse 8. We're going to come back to that in a second, too. But what I want to just what I want to clarify is that what you have in front of you is God's word. And we're not debating here whether or not we're missing some of Mark. It's whether or not this was a later edition. Second point, really quickly, what should we do with verses 9 through 20? Well, first of all, like I just said, many manuscripts do not include this section. Or, or I'm sorry, back up. Many manuscripts do include this. In fact, the majority of them do, but those are typically later manuscripts that we have. The earliest and most um, trustworthy that we have, though, there are two specifically, don't contain verses 9 through 20. We also have evidence from early church fathers who also said that um, their early manuscripts didn't include this either. And then we have others who, where other manuscripts that actually put in the margins by verses 9 through 20, that this was probably a later edition. So all of those things combined lead the majority of biblical scholars, people that are way smarter than I am, to agree that in verses 9 through 20 were added later. We read those on purpose, though, because we're doing our best to understand that we have God's word, but the majority would agree that those were added later. So for today, we're going to focus our time and attention on verses 1 through 8. And there's yet one more reason why I think we should focus our time exclusively on verses 1 through 8. Because, and this again isn't original with me, I think there is a literary purpose for Mark ending at verse 8 that is incredibly important for us to get. The ending, the abrupt ending, if you, if you go back and look at it in your scriptures, of verse 8 
it's like, it's like, wait, what, what, what's supposed to happen next? Like, uh, don't we ever finish this story? I think quite probably Mark's doing that on purpose. And we'll, and we'll talk about why in just a second. Because that may be just what Mark meant to do. The ending of verse 8, if you look back at it, and I'll just read it again quickly. The end of verse 8, well, all of verse 8. And they, those ladies, went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now we know, and Mark knew, Mark knew the rest of what would happen. We know from the other Gospels that they did, in fact, go tell the disciples. The disciples went and looked at the tomb, some of them. Others then would see Jesus. Jesus would appear to over 500 people at one time. Mark's ending here to make us ask the question, just like those ladies had to answer the question, what are we going to do with this Jesus? Because people in Jesus' day were no more predisposed to believing in his resurrection than people in our day are. So God, inspiring Mark, is having us answer the same question ourselves. You now know who this Jesus is. He just spent 15 chapters telling us. Now at the end of chapter 16, he's saying, what are you going to do with him? Two main points to consider there in answering that question. First of all, Jesus is risen whether or not we believe that he is. Jesus is risen whether or not we believe that it is. Here's why I I make that point. Go back up to verses 1 through 8. Note when you look at these verses that Mark is relaying eyewitness accounts. If you were to go back to the end of chapter 15 and then first into the first part of chapter 16, you'll see three ladies mentioned. He, mentioned the, he mentions these ladies. Twice he mentions all three of them, and once he mentions them twice. He references them three times in eight verses. That's not like Mark. Mark is very brief and to the point. There's a reason, though, he's citing these, or he's mentioning these ladies. He's citing sources. He's saying, if you want to know what happened, ask these ladies. Number one, at the end of chapter 15, we see that they were there when he died. They saw him die. Number two, they saw him be buried in that tomb. And then number three, they showed up to the tomb and found it empty. Mark is making the point that these are eyewitness accounts. And he's making the point that if you, his original readers, really want to corroborate my story, you can go ask them. (laughs) Because quite possibly they were still alive when Mark was writing this. So he relays eyewitness accounts. Second, he relays the account of women as the first witnesses. Again, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and we know Joseph as well, and Salome. They bought spices and brought them on that first Sunday, on that Sunday morning. What Mark is saying is, these are the first eyewitnesses, but what he's also making the point, and we may miss it because we're not in that same culture, he's making the point that I don't really care if you're critical of my choice of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Here's what I mean by that. In that culture, if Mark was going to try to make or mount a kind of defensible case for Jesus' resurrection, he would not have selected women as his first eyewitnesses to that resurrection. Why? Because and this is going to make all ladies, and it should make all men in here very angry, the word of women was discounted. 
it was marginalized. In fact, there was, a, um, there was an early critic of Christianity who basically said, Christianity can't be true because in the account of the resurrection, Mark says that, and, and the other gospels say that the first to see Jesus alive were women and don't, I'm just the messenger. <laughs> he says, and we all know women are hysterical. And all women here want to punch Celsus in the face right now. But that's what he said. If, if Mark was trying to make some really defensible argument, he chose some really poor witnesses to choose as his first ones to see Jesus' tomb empty. On top of that, he references their unbelief, their amazement, and their astonishment at Jesus' resurrection. Back in verse 1, we see when the Sabbath was passed, these three ladies bought spices so that they might go anoint him. You don't go buy spices for someone you know is alive again. They bought spices to go anoint his body because they were expecting to be able to catch it before it started to decompose and really smell terrible. They hadn't gotten the chance to before. Now they're going to buy spices. So there was obviously disbelief that Jesus was, uh, was risen from the dead. Then in verses 6 and 8, we see them stand in utter awe and amazement at number one, and you, get, you and I would too, at an angel sitting in the tomb, and the fact that Jesus' body isn't there. And then they run away in verse 8 in trembling and astonished fear. They're going, what in the world do we do with this? None of those aspects point out that they kind of expected for this to happen. <laughs> and we know from the other Gospels as well, the disciples often didn't believe it either. What Mark is pointing out is he's, he's not... He's not sugarcoating this. He's not saying, well, there was one apostle or one of these ladies was like, you know, he did tell us multiple times that he was going to die and rise again. We should maybe at least check the tomb. Nobody said that. And the reason why that's important is that if, again, Mark was making a really strong case for how Christianity is true, you would have thought that he would have maybe at least made up the, the, um, the point that somebody thought he was going to rise because he said this often. No, he says, all of these people totally doubted. Actually, they didn't even have a, a box to put this in. They had no expectation that he would rise again from the dead. So if Mark wanted to really fabricate a believable account of Jesus' resurrection, he did a terrible job. But that drives home the point even more. Mark is saying, Jesus has risen, and I don't care about your cynicism. We know this happened, and it changes everything. And he doesn't try to sell us on it. He just tells it like it is. Um, a few months ago, I don't know how we got roped into this, but um, we had a guy who sold heat sensors for your house and like carbon monoxide detectors and smoke detectors, but they were like, based on the price, ridiculously high end. I don't know how he arranged getting into our house to sell us, but he did. And so like on a Friday night when we would really rather be doing something else, we're sitting at our dinner table with a guy who's selling us hard on these like $300 heat sensors. And we're going, oh, no. Well, what he, what he does is in order to set up, and you've probably had this, somebody selling in your home, unless you're not dumb like we are. Um, <laughs> he comes in and he's got, his, he's got his laptop and he opens up and he shows us these videos. And they're off, they're like really unsettling. These people died because they didn't realize that they didn't have a heat sensor. And I'm like, I don't even know what a heat sensor is. <laughs> and these people died because their smoke detector stinks. And I'm going, uh, I 
think ours is okay? It hasn't beeped in a long time? Well, what he was trying to do was make his case so that when he got to the end, we were like, we're going to die if we don't do this. And I don't want to minimize the importance of fire safety. Please understand that. But I also don't want to say that we need to buy like $1,000 worth of heat sensors. Anyway, um, he was he was trying to make a case to us, and he, he wasn't lying to us. He was just trying to put it in the best possible way. He was a sales guy, and he almost had us. <laughs> Not quite, especially when he named the price. I'm like, okay, Amazon's got something. <laughs> Mark is not doing what that guy did. Mark is just saying, you need a smoke detector (laughs) because fires happen. Mark is saying, this is what happened, and frankly, I don't care if you believe it or not. It's the truth. They saw him. And if you even read this, you have to do something with their eyewitness account. You can believe it or you can disbelieve it, but you have to do something with it because this changes everything. It makes us deal not only with our belief or unbelief about Jesus' resurrection, but what we're going to do with it. But it also drives us to another point. Because not only do we have to deal with our belief or unbelief about whether or not Jesus rose again from the dead, we have to deal with whether or not he's the king that Mark says he is. And that requires us again not to just look at verses 1 through 8 that we've read, but we have to look at the book in its entirety. We, just t- we already talked about this. That all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 1, from that point on, Mark has been making the case that Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. And you have to do something with him. He says, first of all, this happened. He is alive again, whether or not you believe it. But then second of all, Jesus is the king whether or not he's the kind of king we were expecting. Remember, back from the beginning of Mark, Mark has shown us, number one, who Jesus is and how he is that Messiah. Multiple times, both in the first half of the gospel and the second, we see Mark point out the messianic nature of Jesus, and he does this over and over and over again. But his disciples couldn't get it. Let's, let's take a brief survey of the entire book. And I, when I say brief, I mean brief. You don't have to go back there. We're just, I'm just going to recount these. And I think the preponderance of them will, go, will make us go, oh, yeah. He, he's not just a special guy. He's not just a great teacher. He's exactly who Mark says he is. Chapter 1 begins with his baptism. Uh, literally, they heard God's voice speaking blessing over him and the Spirit landing on him like a dove. And then he goes and he heals somebody. In chapter 2, he heals the paralytic. And then he declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, he displays his power in healing a man with a withered hand. Then he sends out his disciples vested with authority to cast out demons. Chapter 4, he speaks in parables on the kingdom of God. And he does so with unique authority. Then after that, he goes and calms the, the Sea of Galilee. He calms a storm. He takes it from total upheaval, and then he says, peace be still, and it's as glass. 
Chapter 5, he shows his authority over the demon possessing the man and the Gerasenes. Then he heals both the woman who touches the hem of, of his garment. If you've read that, you remember what I'm talking about. And then he raises up Jairus' daughter. In chapter 6, he sends out his apostles and gives them unique power. Then later we see him feed over 5,000 people. And then after that, he goes and he walks on water. In chapter 7, we see him challenge the religious elite and then show that he is Lord of the Gentiles as well by healing the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. In chapter 8, he feeds over 4,000 people and he gives sight to a blind man. In chapter 9, he's transfigured before Peter, James, and John and he talks to Moses and Elijah. Then he comes down from the mountain and heals a boy with an unclean spirit. Chapter 10, when speaking about the place of children in the kingdom of God, he speaks about God's kingdom with incredible authority, like he knows something about it. He continues to speak with that authority when he talks to the rich young ruler, and he speaks about how hard it is for people with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In chapter 11, we see him enter Jerusalem as the king foretold by the prophet Zechariah. For a brief moment, it looks like people get it, but not quite, when we know that because later they're going to yell, crucify him. In chapter 12, when one of the scribes asks him about which commandment is the greatest, he once again speaks with authority on the kingdom of God. In chapter 13, he speaks with authority on the signs of the end of the age, and then says he's going to come back for his chosen people. And then in chapter 14, during the Last Supper, Jesus takes the cup, speaks of the new covenant and then says that he won't drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Over and over and over and over again, Mark is pointing out Jesus is displaying the fact that he's the Messiah over and over and over again. Through his teaching, through his acts, through his admonishment, he's putting on display that he is the Messiah for whom they've been waiting. He is the king. But while he's working miracles and teaching with authority, he's also talking about, and we've referenced this already, he's also talking about, especially in chapters 8, 9, and 10, he keeps talking about the fact that he's going to die. And we know that the disciples just could not get it. And before we, we, we cast aspersions at them or throw stones at them for not getting it, I don't think we would have either. Because Jesus, if we're honest with ourselves, doesn't just not square with the Jewish expectation of a Messiah. He wouldn't be the kind of king we would be expecting either. We want a king that immediately destroys our enemy, but we need a king who gladly lays down his life for his enemies. We want a king who would come to show us the, that, that we can rule and reign with him immediately. But we need a king who would come to show us that the way up is down and that greatness comes through service. We want a king that immediately changes our circumstances. But we need a king who can change our hearts. We want a king that preserves our lives, but we need a king who would lay down his life take it up again, and in so doing, make possible our future resurrection and eternal life. We, we would want Jesus to fit into this box, but he doesn't do, do that because he's not the king that we would have expected. He's the king that we need. If we're open to listening to Mark's display of who Jesus really is, and in specifically verses 1 through 8, how he rose again from the dead, he's not going to be the Jesus who we would have naturally expected 
but he is absolutely the king that we need, that this world needs. And if that's the case, if he really is that king, and if he really is risen again from the dead, then he deserves all of our devotion, all of the worship, and all of the praise that we can give him, and infinitely more. Jesus is not the king we would have expected, but he is the king that we need. So to recap briefly, Jesus is risen regardless of our belief, and Jesus is the king whether or not he's the kind of king we expected. So we asked at the beginning, or we said at the beginning, this news about who Jesus is and what he has done, um, it requires a response from us. So how do we respond? Well, I'm going to say, first of all, and this is, you know, if you want to speak in these terms, this is application of this text. First of all, just like Danny mentioned last week, what you do with Jesus first is believe on him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. If there's nothing else that you do today, if there's nothing else that you do in your entire life, like I said, this is the one thing that you cannot get away from is answering the question of who Jesus is. You can, you can decide to reject him and to not believe in him, but you can't ignore him. What he is calling on, what Mark is calling on us to do is to believe on Jesus because he's the king and he can forgive your sins and he can justify you with God and he can give you an eternal place in the family of God. So first of all, believe on Jesus. And if you have questions about that, which if this is the first time you've heard that or you've heard it a bunch of times, but you've never maybe um, had the courage to ask somebody, please do that today. Don't leave without doing it. You're surrounded by a bunch of people in this room who would love to talk to you about that. But then also, this resurrection of this king and this message that he is the king, he is the Messiah, that is the king for the whole world, it's a timely message for us because we're in the midst of, at least that I could count, three really significant and unavoidable conversations in our current context. <laughs> if, you turn on, uh, if you open up social media in any form and you look at it for more than 30 seconds, you'll see each of these probably a thousand times. First of all, everything is political right now, right? We can't get away from it. But did you know, and it, and it can get us embroiled in it, and it can get us all, all worked up. Did you know that Jesus as the risen king allows us to not put our hopes in political change? Do you realize that? That Jesus, if Jesus is actually the king and he's the risen king, it allows us to not put our hopes in that. It allows us to not be driven by that upheaval. I've heard someone else mention this, and I agree. For too long in this country, we've placed the burden of providing hope and stability and peace of mind and even identity on politics. And it was never meant to bear that burden. It can't. Only Jesus can, but he can because he's the risen king. So vote as one informed by scripture. Be informed because that, that is your, you have that ability, and it's, it's a good thing to be informed. It's a right thing to be informed, but don't place your hopes in a politician or in political figures. That idolatry is often revealed in how we think about, how we talk about, and how we treat those who fall in a different political space than you and I do.
We use so much of our energy directing our vitriol at those on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, and we never end up loving them. And if we look down in our hearts, we see that it's probably because we're not placing our hope in the risen king. We're, we're placing our hope in some type of political change or in some type of political figure who we think can break, bring that change. The risen king changes all of that. Think about this too. We are in the middle of a conversation, a conversation that is long overdue around racial justice in this country. Sometimes it's what people don't want to talk about. But Jesus, as the risen king, was slain, and we see in, in Revelation chapter 5, by his blood he has ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the followers of this king should be the first in line to call out and denounce and work against any type of racism wherever we see it. Following Jesus also allows us to recognize our own tendency toward racism and prejudice. Our hearts naturally default that way. We naturally go toward justifying ourselves and those in our tribes over others. But following the risen king allows us to repent of that and moves us away from racism to humbly see ourselves in as much need of the salvation offered by this risen king as anyone else. And it also gives us the humility to repent of our complicity instead of defaulting to say that I'm not part of the problem. And if you and I recoil at just the mention of racial justice, that's probably the problem. But then there's one more. This is kind of a big headline these days. Uh, coronavirus. <laughs> I mention it because we can't get away from it right now. You and I are all sick of hearing about it, but the fact of the matter is it's raging, obviously, more than ever. I just saw this morning we're now over 10 million cases worldwide. And that can be deeply unsettling. You've watched it in our society. You may have felt it in your own heart. Some people have responded to it one way by saying it's a hoax. Some people have responded to another way by saying it's the worst thing ever. Either way, it's a conversation you can't get away from. And there's no doubt that it is a problem. And it can be very unsettling. But what it does, I think, for people who follow the risen king is that it helps us think through the fact that because we follow him, it gives us a new lens through which we can view a deadly pandemic like this. It gives us a new lens, really, to view suffering. Because if we follow a king who is not just one in name only, but has proven himself to be that, and then has most specifically proven himself to be that through his resurrection from the dead, it actually allows us to approach suffering in general with joy. And that sounds nuts. But that's what it in fact does because it allows us to see that number one, he is sovereign over everything. If he's sovereign over death and can rise again from the dead, he's sovereign over any, any virus. And so we then know that he can use this for very good ends, for God glorifying ends and for ends that actually bring people to himself. We can see that something like COVID-19 or any other suffering in our lives is working in us to incrementally transform us into trusting him more, loving others more, and finding him to be the greatest treasure in our lives. And if you've never yet started following this king, if you've never believed on this king, he is actually using this or the other suffering in your life to do the exact same, in you, same thing in you. He is driving you toward himself 
to trust in him, to love him, and to find him your greatest treasure. Because every time we face suffering, it is a deep reminder that when we, when we hope in our circumstances to provide us peace and identity and stability and joy and comfort and happiness, that is all shifting sand. But if Jesus is the risen king that he says he is, he can use both the really great things in life and the awful things in life to make you exactly what he wants you to be and to bring about the best possible ends. That's why it can change our total perspective on something like this where we can respond to it, not with, not with shuddering fear, but with great confidence that we serve a king who's never been taken aback by this, whose plans have never been messed up. He didn't get sent home. He's not under quarantine. He's not having to wear a mask. <laughs> He's in total control. And that's proven by the fact that he is the king and he is the risen king. And I know it's not easy at all to think in those terms. But it's exactly how the kind of king that we wouldn't expect, but the kind of king that we need would want us to respond, I think. It reminds me of, if you've ever read the children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or any of the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, if you haven't, I think you would still enjoy it, even if you're like 70. You'd still enjoy this book. And if, you, if you've read any of those books, you know that C.S. Lewis, the author, was writing them often as, as an allegory of, what it, of following Jesus. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, the king of the land of Narnia, where four children find themselves, his name's Aslan, and he's a lion. And these four children who are new to Narnia, they come into contact with a family of beavers. Just go with me, Okay. And these beavers can talk. It's a kid's book, all right? You'll still enjoy it. Read it. <laughs> and um, the Mr. Beaver, <laughs> this is not going well. No, but he says, Aslan is a lion. He is the great lion. And Susan, one of the little kid, one of the, one of the children, says, ooh, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? This is also, C.S. Lewis was British. We wouldn't have asked it that way. Is he quite safe? She asks, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? He isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. I love that. Because when it comes to Jesus, who said anything about safe? But he's good. He's the king. And he isn't the kind of king we would have expected. He's the kind of king that we need. And I'm so thankful for that because while we sit in the middle of some really significant upheaval in our country and in our world, I'm going to finish with this. This is what we look forward to from Isaiah chapter 11. And this is all because he's the king. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, 
and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What will you do with this risen king? Because that makes all the difference. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have shown us not only who Jesus is, but how he is exactly who he told us he is, and that is the Messiah, the King, not only of the Jews, but of the whole world. And he has laid down his life and paid the penalty for sins, the sins of people like us here today. He has stood in our place, he has paid our penalty, but he is alive again. And through his resurrection, we now know we no longer need to fear death, we no longer need to fear pandemics, we no longer need to fear suffering. We can put our full confidence in him and not in our circumstances because he is the sovereign king over all. Help us this week to walk in that reality with great joy, with great confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. And we pray these things through his name. Amen.